God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest today is the prolific author of incredible books like Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, Jesus Unveiled, and Jesus Undefeated. Notice the trend. He is one of the four co-hosts of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, writes a popular column for Pathios, and teaches a variety of classes that help lead people away from toxic theology and towards freedom in life. His latest book releases today. It's entitled Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the second coming. And I think it's his best work today. Welcome back for a record-breaking fifth appearance on the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Keith Giles. Oh, Jason, thank you so much. See, I have to keep writing books, so you keep bringing me back. So, <laughs> Well, the strategy's working, and I'm looking forward to your next one. So, uh, man, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, Jason, thank you. I, I always enjoy talking to you. Um, yeah, and I'm excited about this topic. So thank you. First of all, how are you? How are you navigating this tumultuous historic era that we are all currently experiencing? Yeah, well, yeah, you know what? Um, probably better than most, and I feel a little guilty saying that because I know for for many people, this global pandemic has been devastating to them financially, and you know, they, people have lost jobs. They have a lot of uncertainty. It's really ruined a lot of people's plans for this year, and this has just been a horrible year in many ways. But overall, I'm doing okay in in the sense that I had already made a shift to working full time as an author from home and, and writing and teaching online classes. So it hasn't impacted me, you know, in the worst ways, like at the financial side of things or health wise, you know, I'm healthy. My wife, my, my parents and her parents and my kids are healthy. So, oh, I mean, I'm grateful. I'm very thankful uh, for that. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm doing well. And what I'm trying to do is encourage people um, who aren't doing well, because I do know this has been a really a, a very tough time for many people. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about your new book. I am so excited about this book, Jesus Unexpected. You take on rapture theology and really just end times madness in general. Why did you choose to write on that subject right now? Well, I didn't. I did choose to write on this subject, but um, as far as the right now part of it, that was sort of uh, accidental because honestly, I, I intended to write this book a year ago. Uh, my publisher talked me into instead writing the book on hell, Jesus Undefeated, which I'm so glad I did. Uh, it was also a very important topic and very needed, but it caused me to postpone this book until 2020, which, you know, maybe God knows something I don't. Maybe, <laughs> uh, I'm sure he does. Um, maybe the timing was much better for this book to come out now. And uh, so th that decision was sort of made for me as to when uh, the book would be published. But um, but it's such an important topic, Jason. I mean, as I outline in the book, and I, I'm sure many listeners can, can sympathize with, you know, many of us who grew up in American Christianity, especially evangelical uh, fundamental Christianity, you know, we were raised from a young age, uh, if we grew up in the church, you know, to sort of have this incredible paranoia and anxiety and fear surrounding the, the second coming of Christ. I tell a story in the book about, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and being afraid that my parents had been raptured and, and I couldn't go back to sleep until I verified that they were still, yes, in the house and I had not been left behind uh, to suffer through the tribulation alone as a, you know, nine, 10 year old boy. And, uh, but I know people that have, that anxiety and fear has continued. I mean, they're grown adults and they still wake up in terror uh, of, of being left behind. So, but also on top of that as well, there are people, and I've met several people after putting this book together, having many conversations with people who also either themselves or have family members who literally passed over, you know, 
quit their jobs or, or um, sold their homes, decided not to go to back to college and get their master's degree, uh, you know, made life-changing decisions because, well, Jesus is coming back any moment now, and so there's no point. And, and and so it's it's really this whole topic, this whole misunderstanding of the end times rapture theology, has shipwrecked so many people's lives, impacted it in so many very real and and damaging ways. Uh, I just felt like I have to write a book on this because I didn't really, I don't really feel like there's been a lot to kind of uh, counteract and, and contradict a lot of this sort of end times hype that just keeps on coming up in Christianity today. I remember as a kid visiting one church in particular that in children's church, right after they tried to teach us to speak in tongues, um, <laughs> they uh, had us jumping up and down doing what they called rapture drills. Rapture practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you remember all the bumper stickers in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, right? Oh, yes. and so, so there's been some funny aspects that we could point to and say, you know, that's pretty ridiculous. But the reality is a whole lot of people have bought into this, and I certainly did for a long time. Is this something you believed personally? Um, yes, for a time I did. Um, I mean, I also talk in the book, I tell a personal story in the book about how I remember sitting on the on the floor of a friend's house uh, and uh, going through a, a book slash Bible study on the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. I still have a copy of that book. Um, and I was absolutely convinced as a, as a teenager in 1988 that, um, well, pretty much my life was over. I wasn't going to get married. I wasn't going to have kids. I wasn't going to live my dream because I mean, holy moly, 88 reasons. And they seemed really convincing, right? So I did buy into it. And of course it didn't happen. And so that probably was the beginning of my disillusionment. It happened again, uh, during the first Gulf war and, it, but it, I still hadn't, woken up yet. I actually did lead a Bible study on the book of Jeremiah, I think it was, and Isaiah and Jeremiah about end times prophecies that I believed mapped to Saddam Hussein and what was happening in Iraq at the time and that Iraq was was Babylon. And uh, But again, nothing happened. And so that was, then, then I think after those two events, it was sort of like, huh, maybe these people who say that they understand biblical prophecy don't understand it as well as they say they do. And that's at least I became more open to the possibility that there was more going on in the Bible when it came to end times, quote unquote, end times prophecies than I was aware of. But yeah, I, I did buy into it for a while and I did make some embarrassing mistakes as a result. I think that's where the, the chinks in the armor were for me for that doctrine as well. So many people with so many different opinions, all based on the same scriptures, um, saying, you know, just outlandish things, making these predictions. The only thing they all had in common is they were all wrong. That's right. <laughs> that is exactly right. I, 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 that's what blows my mind, Jason, is like, Consistently across the board, every one of these guys, right, from from uh, Hal Lindsey to John Hagee to anybody who's ever, you know, all these different failed prophecies over the last several decades, the thing they have in common is every last one of them was absolutely wrong. And yet, in spite of the fact that we have a 100% failure rate, every single one of those guys could write a book tomorrow about the end times and sell 2 million copies. Uh. Like it doesn't, the fact that they've been wrong 100% of the time does not at all hurt their popularity. People will continue to keep on buying into this. How did this happen? How did rapture theology become so prevalent, especially here in the United States? Right. And that is something I spend probably, 
a good, uh, nearly a half of the book um, unpacking uh, is the, the the historical, like, how did we get here stuff. So, you know, what I try to show people is that this is a relatively new teaching in the Christian church. It, it started in around 1830. A guy named John Nelson Darby popularized a view of uh, end times rapture theology, which was very new at the time. Uh, he's from England. He did not initially get much buy-in from Christians in England. In fact, they thought he was a heretic. And But when he came to America, he started preaching and sharing his teaching on this end times rapture theory. And he found an audience and it became very, very popular among just the general populations, what we call the lay, the laity ate it up. They loved it. They thought it was exciting and amazing and incredible and they couldn't get enough of it. Eventually, the two the two things that really propelled Darbyism or, or dispensational theology, as it's properly called, uh, what propelled dispensational uh, end times theology into the mainstream for American Christians were two things. One was the Schofield Reference Bible, which incorporated a lot of Darby's teaching and theology into the notes of the study Bible. So people just naturally would read a scripture, a prophecy in their Bible, see a notation, scroll down, read a couple of paragraphs about how this was a future event that hadn't happened yet, and assumed, well, it's in the Bible, this must be theology. So that was that was a big, big push for that view. And the second one was, and this is really crazy, the second one was that it became, this view and teaching became so popular, as I said, among the laity, that eventually people said, you know what would really help this view would be if there was some scholarship to back it up, to give it some legitimacy. What if we created, I don't know, like maybe a seminary or a Bible school that would teach this from a sort of a scholarly perspective and create scholarly support for it? And then we could kick out pastors with degrees from seminaries who have been trained in this, and that would give the view legitimacy. And so they sort of, it's a backwards way of doing it, right? It's not scholarship that created, that that discovered the teaching in the scripture and then spread it to the laity. It was the other way around. It was totally backwards. The laity bought into it, and then then they literally said, why don't we create some Bible schools to give this thing some, uh, some scholarly support? And that's where we ended up with, like, Dallas Theological Seminary and Talbot and some other schools in America, seminaries and Bible schools that literally teach only Darby's end times dispensational theology. And then it spread to the pulpits even more. And that's how we ended up where we are today. It's just insane to me, uh, based on your book and and other things that I've read over the years. I I remember hearing maybe 20 years ago, the first time, it was just shocking to me. I didn't even know this was even questionable. I thought this was straight out of the Bible, straight gospel. And then somebody gave me a little book, I don't even remember the name of it, that basically just said, the commonly accepted rapture theology comes from a young girl's dream that she told mm-hmm. to a preacher who influenced a trans or a, you know the notes on in the in the bible and that's how we got it we we started <laughs> from a bad assumption we took somebody yeah. what was the girl's name margaret mcdonald is that right i think that was her name yeah you're right i saw uh, that that's the detail i left out so darby actually he did popularize it but you're right where darby got his initial inspiration from was this girl a uh, young girl in in england who was uh, who had a sort of a dream slash vision of a double rapture that Jesus was going to come back uh, very soon and and rapture a few people, but he would come back later and sort of come back for the rest of the church later and um, and this was such a, a shocking thing at the time that Darby 
you know, uh, listened to what she was saying and then kind of cobbled together scriptures to support her dream. That's kind of, again, this sort of, it is a very backwards uh, theology. It's like, hey, let's come up with something, then let's find scripture to back it up. Do we have a theology people like? Let's now let's come up with some scholarship to make it look real. <laughs> it's it's so crazy. It's actually so insane. It's just manufactured education, right? I mean, we're yeah. starting with bad assumptions and deciding to scholarize it. I'm so grateful that you've done the actual work and laid out the history in this book and shown us where this went wrong. Now, in the early, I don't know, late. 1990s and early 2000s, the Left Behind series came out, right? Yeah. And cemented this into American Christian culture uh, in a way that it hadn't been previously. Why do we, especially here in America, keep falling for this stuff? Yeah. Well, you know, partly because of the under the kind of the Christian education most of us have received since we were young, if we grew up in the church, it was it, this is just told to us as Christianity. This just is the gospel. There is no other way. We're not told there's any other way uh, to think of this, and we're certainly never told. Oh, by the way, this is only as old as you know, eighteen fifty or something. So um, that's part of it. But the other part of it, I think, are two things. One. Humans just have a natural desire to know the future, right? This is why there's palm readers and fortune tellers and, you know, uh, tarot card readers. And like people just have an insatiable desire, like, tell me what's going to happen. Tell me how my life is going to work out. And uh, I think that's part of it. There's just, a, it's human nature to want to know uh, the answers. That's part of it. And then the other part of it is, frankly, I really do believe that this version of an end times rapture theology that Darby has has created. It's just really, let's just be honest, it's really cool. I mean, you've got this, you know, this shadowy antichrist figure and uh, he, you know, he becomes the ruler of the planet and he forces people to take the mark of the beast. And then there's this massive tribulation and there's these 12 headed dragons with 10 horns flying out of a bottomless pit. And then there's these you know, horse centaur things with scorpion tails flying around, stinging people and hailstones of 100 pound weights and fire falling from the sky and earthquakes. I mean, dude, if this was a movie, I mean, this would be the most incredible, epic, you know, mashup of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and, you know, Armageddon. It would just be the most amazing. It's a freaking amazing story, dude. And so with all of that combined together, it's like this incredible perfect storm like this amazing cocktail of like what americans eat up we love the uh, bombastic explosions and monsters and they're like dude this thing is amazing and then that's part of the problem that i feel like i run into is when i try to show christians that hey by the way as cool as that is um that's totally fiction like that the bible does not teach that it's sort of like if i take that away from someone what can i possibly replace it with I mean, I can't, I can't, unfortunately, I, I can't tell you a story that's equal on that scale of, you know, explosions and monsters and stuff like that. I, I'm sorry, I can't replace it with something. Now, I, now, I do think the replacement story is better. I think it's awesome, but it's just not going to be, you know, the um, explosion fest and the monster movie, you know. Well, it seems like the only way to ruin that movie would be to put Kirk Cameron or Nicolas Cage in it. That would be, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's really, if you're gonna, 
That's really the saddest thing, Jason, is that I they know. have such an amazing story and no one can really tell it. No. And not that they should, but every I mean, version know. of those movies has been terrible. Well, you know, when I was a kid, it was the uh, the Thief in the Night. There was the Thief I remember in the Night. That one. that one scared the hell out of me. Oh, yeah. But the, you know what? If you go back and watch them, I think you can find them on YouTube. There's like, like four or five of them. Uh, I can't remember all the titles, but the yeah, the Thief in the Night series. But they're seventies. They're so cheesy. They're, the special effects are just horrible. I showed it to my kids, and we laughed all the way through it. It was just so bad. Um, <laughs> so at least left behind it was there was a slight improvement on the special effects side of things. <laughs> yeah, they got a bigger budget for those films. Right, that's good. Um, all right, so beyond the pop culture aspect of it, what has this theology cost? the church? What are the consequences for the church of our preoccupation with end times theology? Right. Well, other than what we've already mentioned, I think for me, I think the biggest danger, and this is really, if there's like sort of one motivation for me to kind of pull back the curtain on this and and disillusion some Christians, to be honest, I want to disillusion them on this story and just say, no, look, no, this is not what's going on. This is not what's going to happen. This is not what, this is not our future. The, the, the thing, the danger I see is that by believing in this version, by believing in this story, that one day soon, and it's always coming soon. In fact, it's been coming soon since 1850, uh, but it's always coming soon. It's always, it could be tomorrow. The problem with this, that kind of mentality that we buy into is that it it really basically paralyzes the church. It puts us in a pause mode where we as Christians are basically all waiting for Jesus to come back. And it's going to be very soon. So why, you know, why bother? Why, why get busy? Because, I mean, it could be this week. It could be next week. It could be end of the year. But Jesus is coming back very soon. And he, when he does, he's going to fix everything. Uh, and, and if we buy into that, it essentially paralyzes the church. It makes us totally ineffective, and it prevents us from really stepping into our our identity and our calling as the incarnation of Christ in the world today. Absolutely. I remember people asking me, you know, as a young evangelist, what's your 20-year plan? And my response was, I don't need a 20-year plan. Jesus is coming back. Right. You know, Jesus will be back way before then. And so <laughs> a consequence of this theology— is that we don't come up with a 20-year plan to end world hunger. Right. We don't have a, a long-term peace plan. No. Nope. Um, the, the Middle East is a powder keg. You can't break wind in the Middle East without it turning into a massive end times event right. that sets the Christian church on fire and gets us rallying to Israel's side because we bought into this theology that's so destructive and we really all just believe that we are the terminal generation. Jesus is coming back now, so we don't need a long-term plan to address anything. Right, exactly. And and again, since 1850, generation after generation has believed exactly that. And and they've all, and again, like these other guys that we talked about, they've all been wrong. Uh, and so how many Christians have essentially wasted their life, uh, you know, failed to step into their God-given calling as ambassadors of Christ to make an impact and change on the world for Christ and his kingdom and the gospel. Uh, I mean, it's, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. It's really, you can really kind of see that the, the Christian church is just spinning its wheels and, and just running in circles doing essentially what is nothing, uh, to, to address the things that Jesus cared most about. We're not motivated to, to end injustice. We're not motivated 
to care about the planet, right? Why bother? It's all going to blow up anyway. And, and so, yeah, it just really makes Christianity completely weak and powerless and pointless. One of the things that I love about your new book is that you are not trapped in the old pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial drama. The view that you present goes way beyond that. Talk to us about what it is that you are actually proposing with this new book. Oh boy. And here it comes here. Here's, yeah, here's the thing. And this is the thing, honestly, that I'm most excited about in the book. Cause once I, you know, like I said, it's been a half of the book, just sort of dealing with dispensationalism and showing you from scripture. That's not what this teaches. And, and, and let's look at these scriptures one at a time and say, well, if it's not about this, what is it about? So I, I go through all that and I, it's important and it's necessary. And I, and actually I love doing that, but I, I honestly couldn't wait to get through that part of the book so that I could get to the best part. And that's this part you're asking me about, which is like, okay, so what is it that we're looking forward to? What, if we don't believe that this version that Darby has given us of the second coming and the rapture and all that is, is that's not really what we're looking forward to. That's not what scriptures tell us. Then what does it tell us? And what is it we're, we're expecting? And, and to me, this is the most exciting thing. It's the realization that the second coming of Christ started 2,000 years ago at the incarnation. It was, uh, and it was basically set in motion at the resurrection and, uh, and was finally inaugurated at Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. And now every single human being on this planet has the potential to abide in Christ and Christ would abide in them. And in this way, Christ has come and is coming in us. We are his body. That means the physical body of Christ is already present on this planet right now. And it's us. It's the body of Christ. And everything that you would expect that Jesus is going to do when he physically returns is exactly what we should be about right now because Jesus has physically come in us. We are the body of Christ and we have the mind of Christ and we are filled with the spirit of Christ and we are called. I mean, th this is one of the things where I think when I had the epiphany, when I, when I discovered this, uh, I remember sitting on my couch and I was flipping through my Bible and I just started coming, I, I started connecting some dots on some scriptures and I was like, oh my gosh, you know what? I think that all these verses about the coming of the Lord, the word, the word in the Greek is parousia. It just actually means presence. And it's like, oh, it's just the presence of Christ. Well, the presence of Christ has never left. How can he come back Is he, if he says, if he never left and he says he'll never leave, he'll never forsake us. Um, and so I kind of term it in the book as the slow motion second coming of Christ. Because I, I believe every single time any human being makes a decision to abide in Christ and for Christ to abide in them and to live that out and walk that out, Christ comes to this earth just a little more and a little more and a little more. And that's the goal. That's the plan. And, and honestly, I think if we could grasp this, it is a mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting uh, revelation. So again, it's not the, uh, we have the movie, the movie analogy. It's not the Jerry Bruckheimer Explosion Fest, well, Lord of the Rings monster movie, incredible special effects version. It's more like um, The Sixth Sense. It's like all of a sudden there's a twist in the story and you go, oh my gosh, it was there all along and I didn't realize it. And now it changes everything. And that, that's what it is for me is this sudden paradigm shift revelation that 
the clues have been there all along. It's all through scripture that Christ is, has come through his body and is continuing to come and will continue to come as we live out our calling. And one final thing, I'm sorry, Jason, I'm talking a long time here, but, um, Go for it. There's a, there's also a verse uh, where Paul talks about how he says, you know, all creation is groaning, not for Christ to return. What he says is, is that all creation is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And I think actually that was probably the verse that I read that just made me stop and go, wait a minute. Because what it's saying is that all creation is groaning, again, not for Christ to return, but for the body of Christ, that's you and me, to realize who we are in Christ, to step into this identity of the incarnation of Christ, that, wait a second, we are filled with Christ. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We do are, we have the mind of Christ. We are the physical body of Christ. He's here, and he is desperate to get to work through us and in us. And we have now an amazing part to play in this incredible story of redemption and transformation between God and and his people, his creation. And and see, even more, that's an even more exciting story because actually what it's saying is rather than watching a movie, going again, going starting back to my movie analogy, rather than sitting and watching some amazing movie play out in front of us, we're invited. We're it's almost like it's almost like someone hands us a lightsaber. And says, "All right, all right, Luke. Let's go. Let's go take down the empire. You and I are invited into the story. We are we are being empowered and called to overthrow the empire, to be a part of this revolution that Christ has put in motion. And we have a very active role to play in it. It's not a movie. It's my life. I'm living it out right now. That to me is way more exciting. I love what you're proposing. I'm so excited about it." I love the book where you lay it all out, and I really do encourage people to get a copy of Jesus Unexpected. But there's this really little religious voice in the back of my head that keeps pointing to the elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah. Again and again and again. Are you saying that there will not be a physical return of Jesus to the earth? I'm saying if there is a physical return of Christ to the earth, it will not look like we have been told it will look like. It's not the way we've imagined it. Like in the middle of this conversation, I'm interrupted and, and you and I hear a massive trumpet blast and we go, oh my gosh, and we look outside and there's Jesus on a giant horse in the sky. Here he comes. Whoa. No, I don't think that is what we're expecting. Uh, but, but am I saying that Jesus isn't going to return physically to the earth? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the way it happens is a, it's a, we arrive at it in a different way than we were told. Um, and I did, I did actually, um, as I was writing the book and I was able to send it out to a few people and get some feedback, one of the, and you were one of them, uh, but one of the people I, I sent it to was Brad Jerzak, who I love, and he's just a wonderful, he's become a good friend. And he read it and he was very uh, encouraging about it, but he, he encouraged me like, you know, Keith, you should really write an epilogue to this book. To kind of resolve some of these questions and fears, like you just uh, the question you just asked, what do you mean? Like, what are the full implications of what you're saying? Are you taking away something in the story that, like, so am I not going to eventually, like, physically see Jesus face to face? Am I actually not going to live in some end times kingdom where it's me and my friends and we're all gathered around and there's Jesus over there under the tree and hey, let's go talk to him? No, I'm not taking that away at all. I actually do still believe that something like that is going to be 
our everyone's ultimate reality. And in fact, if you read my other my previous book, Jesus Undefeated, uh, I, I acknowledge that. Again, I just think the way we get there is a different path than we have been told. What do you say to people who are just exhausted with various end times doctrines and just the whole subject? And because there's so many different opinions, we just are quick to dismiss them all and just say, this isn't something I even want to think about. Does it really matter what we believe about the end times? It does and it doesn't. I mean, in one way, like you said, so if, if, if I literally met somebody and they said, Keith, I'm just so tired of this end times thing. I could care less about it. I'd say, well, good, great. That means that, that means this whole paranoia and psychosis about all these different, is Jesus coming back tomorrow or the next day or whatever? And we're waiting around. Good. If that's really genuinely where you're at, good, because now you've already broken free of that story. And maybe now you're ready to, to accept what I'm telling you, which is that, no, 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 we are actively bringing the kingdom to earth. We are the body of Christ. Let's just get after that. Let's not expect something in the future. Let's not wait. Let's not fall for all these theories and date setting and all this kind of, oh, what's happening in the Middle East must mean it's in the maps to what's happening in Daniel or Revelation. No, it doesn't. And let's just move on. But for many Christians, they do that. They do respond to that. I mean, I'm always running into Christians and, and being people in my own family who are like, oh my gosh, you see what happened in the news? What's happening in Israel? What's happening in politics? Like, you know, maybe this is the end times. Maybe. So if, if, as long as, if anyone is still sort of like um, reading or expecting end times prophecy, prophecy to, to map up to sort of current events, uh, then I would recommend my book. Please read my book because I'm going to do my best to try to dissuade you from that way of looking at scripture or reading the newspaper or watching the news. Uh, I don't think that's what we need to be doing. What we really need to be doing is uh, recognizing the role we have to play in what God wants to accomplish, what Christ wants to accomplish uh, on earth in his creation and through his creation. What do you do with the book of Revelation? It seems like a lot of folks will point to Revelation and say, no, see here, right here in the Bible, it says what's going to happen. And of course, they put it off to our future and, and think that that's what we're waiting for. And, and of course, that gets tied into modern political events, as you mentioned, in Israel and here in the United States, because we always think that the U.S. has to be central to any plan that God might have for the future. Um, what do you do with the book of Revelation? I know you spent some time on this in the book. Right. Well, I mean, frankly, personally, I would, it wouldn't bother me a bit if we just decided, if we all agreed that the book of Revelation should be taken out of our Bibles, that's probably a better thing. Because it's, it's more trouble than it's worth in the sense that it's been so abused and misunderstood, um, I think we're better off without it. Because again, it's just become this weaponized uh, thing, this weaponized book in the Bible that keeps us trapped in this mentality. But but it's but I don't it's not that I don't like the book. I think actually it's a wonderful book if it's properly understood. So again, if we're going to read Revelation, let's I, I would just encourage you and I do this in the book, uh, I, I would just encourage you that and I'm trying to I would try to show you that Revelation is not about our future, yours and mine. It was about the future of um John on the island of Patmos, uh, over and over again, he says that the revelation are th about things that will happen soon and will happen quickly and that are soon come to pass. He uses those phrases over and over and over again. So it's about his future. And I do in my book try to show you ways that the things that are predicted in Revelation and the things that are predicted by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25, it already came to pass. Like it, it happened in their future. 
but in our past. And in that sense, it's very useful to read things that are prophesied to happen in their future and then to understand in what ways historically those things actually did come to pass in, by the way, some pretty amazing and mind-blowing and exciting ways. Um, That's exciting. So if we're going to study these sort of prophetic books about the future, step one would be understanding that that future is our past. It already happened. Uh, And so it's helpful to see, oh, wow, these prophecies were fulfilled in in amazing ways. That's helpful. Um, I think the only sort of future, you know, like the, the the way Revelation could be helpful to us about today or tomorrow is to recognize in general, it's a it's a template for how Christ overthrows empire. Again, uh, it's Revelation is showing us in what ways Christ and his kingdom and his gospel and the followers of Christ by their testimony uh, did subvert and overthrow the Roman Empire. Uh, so in that sense, it's helpful. And it can be a model for us if we understand it to say, oh, this is how we could maybe uh, undermine and subverse, subversively overthrow empire in our, in our world today. But it's not, again, about predicting some future events that are specifically going, we're expecting to happen, you know, in the next month or so. Uh, Again, I think there's so many assumptions when we're reading, like the book of Revelation. I think we just automatically assume it's the future because it's a prophetic book. And and I I agree with you. I think that there'd be a whole lot less confusion in the church if uh, it hadn't been included in the canon. But there's that passage that talks about, um, you know, in the book of Daniel, the prophecy, he he, Daniel's told, seal it up. It's not for now. But there in Revelation, don't seal this up. It's not for some future appointed time. This is right now. This is happening. And then Jesus there in that Olivet Discourse saying, some of you who are standing here today will not taste death before these events come to pass. And we just translate those words right out of the Gospels and keep our focus so we can so we can think of ourselves as this, you know, final generation to bring in the kingdom. Yeah, you know, that, that passage you mentioned um, where Jesus says that, you know, C.S. Lewis called that the most embarrassing verse in the Bible, uh, which is sad that he would have said that because again, by him saying that what it, what it betrays is the idea or you know, what it reveals is the idea that C.S. Lewis bought into this idea that, well, that must be about some, some events that haven't happened yet. Because that, it, if you believe that everything Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 24 is about some future events and Jesus makes the statement, some of you standing here won't taste death before these things come to pass, then it's embarrassing because you think it hasn't happened yet and you think we're still waiting for it to happen. But if you understand that what Jesus is saying is all absolutely true, everything he predicted will come to pass within 40 years, and it did, then, then it's not embarrassing. It's actually a triumphant you know, exclamation point that absolutely Jesus was absolutely right. He wasn't wrong at all. He nailed it. It actually did happen. Here, here's, here's the problem, Jason, is that What we have in the New Testament are these prophetic scriptures about things that will one day happen, but we don't have in in our New Testaments are the stories of how it was fulfilled. And if you read Josephus, if you read some of of the Roman historians that, again, lived around the time of AD 70, if we included those in our canon, or at least those excerpts about how it was fulfilled in our New Testament canon— you know, sort of after Matthew 24 or after the book of Revelation, we would read the prophecies 
you would read about these things that Jesus says are going to happen soon. You'd read Revelation, what that, that this says, you know, these things are going to uh, happen quickly. And then, the, then you'd turn the page and read, you'd read the, the fulfillment of it. You'd read, oh my gosh, look, look at this, read this. And I put all that in my book. I, put, I, I go into a lot of detail with Josephus and the seven signs of Josephus and Tacitus and uh, many other uh, Roman historians around the first century time that, that, uh, that validate that what Jesus said did happen the way he said it would happen. These are hostile witnesses, hostile sources. They're not Christian. They don't even, they're probably totally unaware of anything that, that Jesus said was going to happen. They're just telling you what actually happened. And if we had that, if we had that piece of information, I think it would actually increase our faith. I think it would make us be even, have even more confidence in what Jesus says uh, in, in those prophetic, you know, all of the discourse passages. We'd be even more excited about, man, Jesus was dead on. He was right. Look, how do we be amazed? But, but again, because we don't have in our New Testament scriptures the, the actual fulfillment of those things, we're left believing. It's much easier than for people to convince us, well, then these things haven't happened and we're still waiting for these things to happen. And, and again, that's my problem with how end times Bible prophecy has been weaponized to keep us in a place of perpetual waiting, perpetual expectation, and in, and ultimately perpetual paralysis, where we don't we don't actually live out our actual identity and calling. Well, you've done a brilliant job of laying all this information out in your new book, and uh, I, I just think it's it's so scholarly, but it's so approachable. It's just a beautiful presentation. I'm so grateful for this book. What do you hope people take away from reading this? What, once they catch on to this vision of the church being the second coming, how do you hope it changes them? Oh man, what well, I, what I hope it would change is that we would just uh, wake up and. Uh, get busy <laughs> that we would we would really say oh my goodness not only you know we got to get over the thing of oh man I can't believe I fell for this oh my gosh I can't believe like okay stop beating yourself up like we have to acknowledge it yes we fell for it we bought into it fine but now you're awake now you recognize what's the potential you understand you know uh, the reality uh, I, I guess my hope would be that we would fulfill uh, Paul's prayer. When he, you know, when he says that all creation is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, that we would just step up now and start being revealed, step into our identity, step into our calling, begin to be very active participants in what Christ is doing to transform us and the world into his kingdom. Uh, and to start being basically, we would then become the fulfillment of all of these things. That is exciting. Man, if I could start seeing that happen uh, I'd, I'd, I'd give this book away for free. <laughs> Let's just, come on, everybody get it, take it. We got to run with it. This thing is amazing. It's exciting. Friends, the book is called Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. It's releasing today. I hope you'll get a copy of it. Keith, what's the best way for folks to grab a copy for themselves? Well, uh, yeah, you can head over to Amazon. I mean, it's available anywhere. I guess you can, you can buy a book, um, but uh, Amazon's probably the quickest and easiest way. It's available at this moment. Uh, in Kindle and in uh, hard copy and print. Uh, the audio version is coming soon. And um, yeah, so th those are the best places to get a hold of it. Keith, you have a few minutes for some listener questions? Bring it on. I love it. All right. Ashley Robbins asks, what helped you the most when deconstructing your personal faith? Um, I think what helped me the most in deconstructing my personal faith was we had a really, you know, during that time we were doing this house church in Southern California, which we did for 11 years. And um, 
the result of that was just a really beautiful community of people where our unity wasn't based on agreement. So that meant that everybody was loved and accepted no matter what they happened, whatever their theology happened to be at the time. And so it just became a very beautiful environment for me to think out loud and uh, share some ideas with people. And, and, uh, and, and so I think that was probably one of the best things. Because I, I, I know for a lot of people that I talk to who have deconstructed, the most difficult things for them, the most painful things, is that the community of faith uh, that they're a part of at the time uh, is not a safe place to... Uh, to disagree or to have a new idea or to question something. And that can be really, you know, you experience rejection as a result of that. And so I didn't. And I think that was probably one of the most significant things about how, how I was able to navigate the deconstruction and reconstruction process, probably easier than most people. Chris Aker says he's heard, uh, as you just mentioned, that you've been a part of the house church movement for several years. He'd like to know what house church looks like in your experience. What do y'all do when you gather? Yeah. Um, well, I would say, look, you know, I'll, I, can, I can answer that question and tell you what, what we do. But I, I would also always caution people, please do not take what we do and just cookie cutter, copy it, uh, you know, verbatim in your own experience. Um, these are, cause I honestly do believe like every expression of the, of the body of Christ, uh, when we gather, what we should really be doing is we should get together at first and say, come together, uh, and submit our, all of us submit ourselves to Christ and to one another, and then just ask Jesus, Jesus, you know, how, how do you want us to gather? What do you, what's your vision for us uh, as we gather together and then listen to that, listen, listen to his voice and do what he says. Um, but when, when we did that, uh, the way, what it looked like for us, was um, just real quickly. There was sort of the, there sort of there was a general flow. It didn't always work this way, but in general, we would come together in, uh, in the morning, um, have some time of fellowship together. You know, get some, get our coffee or whatever tea. Um, we would get started by just acknowledging the presence of Christ. So that would there was just a lot of silence. We would just everyone would bow their heads and we would sit in silence, maybe 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. And what we're doing is not inviting the presence of Christ. We're acknowledging he's been here all along. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. If two or more gathered, he's in the midst. What we're doing though is each one of us needs to sort of orient ourselves and fine tune ourselves um, that Christ, with Christ in, in our presence. So that's kind of what we do. We all kind of tune into Christ and recognize and acknowledge Christ's headship and presence in our midst. And then out, what flows out of that awareness, and again, it, it just happens spontaneously, uh, we say, if anyone speaks, don't talk to us, talk to Christ. Because that's what you would do if he was physically standing here, right? You would not talk to me. You would go, oh my gosh, Jesus, you're here. Let me, I want to love you. I want to talk to you. I want to thank you and praise you and worship you and glorify you and, and uh, you know, draw near to you. And, and if you sing, sing not to us, but to Christ. And uh, if you read a scripture, read a scripture about how amazing Christ is. So it's a very Christ-focused, Christ-centric, you know, beginning there. We acknowledge his presence, we experience his presence, we speak to him, we sing to him, we acknowledge him, we gather around Christ. And then what, again, may flow out of it is some, some singing time of worship. Uh, people might begin to share uh, with one another uh, something God spoke to them during the week or something God is doing in their life. We would just kind of share our, our, our experience of Christ with one another. Uh, what flows out of that might be someone needs uh, encouragement or prayer or something like that. Uh, we would Then we would take the time to do that. We might flow back into some silence. We might flow back in and out of some singing. And um, whenever that is sort of done, then we would typically share some communion together. 
maybe sing some more. <laughs> and then we would share a meal together. When it was all sort of over, we would, we would uh, have a potluck uh, lunch together and uh, just, again, continue to fellowship and, and share our lives with one another uh, as we shared a meal. And, and I tell you what, Jason, it's just the best thing I've ever done uh, with the word church on it. It was just so beautiful and so incredible. And now that we've moved to El Paso, Texas, we are hoping uh, to get something very similar to that started here. Somebody really ought to write a book about that. It's just a beautiful <laughs> idea. Oh, wait, you did. Yeah. Jesus Unveiled, Forsaking Churches We Know It for Ecclesia as God Intended is the name of the book. And we also did a previous podcast episode on that subject that I would point people to. Right. Um, I, I, I agree with you. Um, the organic-ish church that I was a part of uh, was definitely the the most beautiful uh, expression of church that I've that I've seen, and I'm so grateful for it. And I'm grateful for your work. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you were one of the very first people that exposed me to that idea years ago. So oh, cool. thank you for that. Yeah. Um, Don Marlowe wants to know what your prayer life looks like these days and asks what you think of the Mark Karras, Thomas J. Ord idea of conspiring prayer. Oh, that is a great question. And honestly, it's probably the thing I have wrestled with the most lately sort of how do I approach prayer now? Because I, I do, I, I mean, Mark Harris uh, personally has really helped me with this. He and I have actually had conversations about this and um, he's helped me a lot uh, because, yeah, I, I, I guess I've reached a place where, and probably like uh, the person asking the question has, has done, uh, you kind of, in your deconstruction, you might reach this place where you realize that the way that we have been taught to pray is sort of summarized as asking or begging God to be good, you know? Uh, and so I just started noticing that. Like I would start to pray about a problem or a situation and I would find myself basically saying, you know, God, please be loving to this person or God, please, you know, respond with mercy and kindness to this person or God, please show your favor to this person. And then I would have to stop myself and go, why am I asking God to do what I believe he was going to do anyway. Why, do I, why am I asking God to be who he already is? He's already a loving father. So if God already is a loving father and he already is love, God is love. And if I believe that and God knows everything, Jesus even says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then it just sort of is like, well, why am I praying like this? Why am I asking and begging God to be who he already is? So I'm going to stop doing that. Um, the other thing I stopped doing is like um, sort of asking other people to pray with me, like, I, like as, as if, if I could just reach some magic number, maybe it's 150, maybe it's 300, maybe it's a thousand or something like, but if I get enough people begging God, then God, then God will do something. Like, I don't believe that either anymore. So like, I'm not going to do that anymore either. I don't think that's helpful. So, yeah. So, uh, I do think Thomas Ord and Mark Harris are onto something sort of, sort of a conspiring prayer or a, uh, reconstructive prayer, which really what I do now in my prayer is to, I, I begin by acknowledging who God already is. I just say, God, thank you that you are a loving God. Thank you that you know our needs before we ask. Thank you that you love these people more than I do. Thank you that, uh, you know, because you're a loving father, I know your heart is to bring change, bring healing, bring hope, bring encouragement. And I pray God that nothing would prevent you from doing that. Um, and that people, uh, everyone involved would collaborate with you to bring those things to pass in these situations. Um, and I think the other thing it's caused me to do is to recognize that to not ask God to do things that are within my power, right? It doesn't help for me to drive down the street and pass a homeless guy and say, throw up a prayer and go, God, 
please help that homeless man today. Because I feel like the Spirit of God is saying, well, Keita, you have a car and you got $5 in your pocket. And if you really have compassion on this guy and you really want him to receive help, pull over and <laughs> and hand him the $5 or buy him a sandwich, you know, like... So again, that's the other thing. I feel like sometimes prayer becomes a cop-out. We're like, oh, God, you fix it. God, you do it. I'm looking for ways now where, well, maybe what I can do is be the answer to that, my own prayer. Uh, again, that's collaborating with the Spirit of God to bring the kingdom to people. So uh, I have radically changed the way I approach prayer, and um, I think it just makes more sense. Yeah, I love that idea of prayer as well. Um, I think for so many years, my prayer life— uh, struggling as it was, was really just spiritual bypassing. And, and the same could be true with the whole rapture-driven hype mentality, right? We're just waiting for God to do things that he's put us here to do. right? And so we, we ask God, again, to help that homeless person or to help that sick person or that neighbor down the street. And, and it's almost like God's up there just shaking his head saying, but I've given you everything that you need right. <laughs> to answer that prayer. What are you asking me for, right? Right. Yeah, I want to point everybody to your course because all of these questions that folks have sent in today are, are touched on at least in your course, Back to Square One. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Oh, yeah. Thank you, by the way, for, for giving me a chance to do that. Yes. So um, last year, I started this 90-day course called Square One. And uh, just really to help, what I was noticing was there's so much out there deconstruction focused. And I, what I was realizing is there's almost nothing focused on reconstruction. And so I, I wanted to provide something. And again, also because uh, for the last several years, you know, people email me and text me and want to talk to me on the phone or have a Zoom call or something for like an hour and, and basically want me to coach them through their deconstruction process. And I'm happy to do it. And I've been doing it, like I said, for years. But what I recognized was that that's a very inefficient way. Like I, I talked to one person one time for one hour and then I'd never talk to them again. I don't know what happens. So I thought, okay, look, if I, if I can start this 90-day course and it's 90 days and I'm going to commit to spending uh, on an hour a week with, with everyone in the course. And we're going to systematically walk through each sta step and phase of deconstruction. We're going to process it together. We're going to have these calls together. Uh, I've recorded a series of lectures on each of these things that they watch ahead of time and I give them some homework to do. And then we get with them at the end of the week, we, we have these hour-long Zoom sessions where we process it together. So I did that and I created that and it was just so amazing. Oh my gosh, I just saw incredible changes in people leaps and bounds beyond what I could have expected. And then I really very accidentally what happened was I did not intend this, but now that we've run it like four times, uh, we're now on our fourth round of square one with, a, you know, the, with people going through the class. Um, there's a community being created because there's a private Facebook group and everyone who's gone through it stays in the group and it stays, it stays focused on encouraging one another in reconstruction. And as more and more people take square one, We've got this large group of people that are in this group and this part of this community. And I just recently started Square Two. And Square Two is just going further on this. Like there's even more stuff that people have requested. Keep talk about prayer, talk about worm theology, uh, talk about how do I ex experience Christ. Uh, so, okay, let's do that. Let's, let's, let's put something together. So I put together Square Two and it's a thousand times better. Square Two is like, I'm so excited by Square Two. And so now we've got Square One and Square Two going. And we are, uh, we've just decided we're going to start a Square Three course as well. So, it's an ongoing course. Um, it is something that that people, uh, the feedback has been amazing. The community is what makes it wonderful. Uh, if anyone's interested in it, again, we run it uh, 
you know, very regularly. It's just, it's, uh, it's something that you can sign up for. And in fact, um, the next one will run in September. Square one will run in September. I think it's like September 21st. Yes. Is the next round of square one. So if anyone, if anyone's interested in that, you can contact me directly and I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Cause I do offer discounts. I even offer uh, free seats for people that can't afford it. Uh, there's some sponsored seats available. Uh, but if you want to just find out about it, it's uh, you can go to BK2 SQ1. That stands for back to square one. But it's BK, the number two, SQ, and the number one dot com. Uh, if you just want to check it out yourself and see what it's all about. Friends, we're going to put a link to the website for Square One in the show notes to this episode. So be sure to check that out. Take advantage of it. Keith, I know you're always working on your next book. What's next for you? Yes, I am. And I am actually finally getting really excited about my next one. So yeah, my next book, I was back and forth on what it was going to be, uh, two different ones I was playing with. But I just recently uh, got super excited about writing a book about penal substitutionary atonement theory, uh, which is going to look talk about like uh, the cross, uh, atonement, uh, sin, what is sin, what is salvation. Well, I am going to go pretty much in depth with worm theology and the whole idea like, you know, we are wretches and worms and all that. And so, yeah, I'm super excited about that, especially just because recently I felt like God showed me some things. Actually, it was through conversations we were having in our Square 2 group, like the lights went on and it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I've got to write a book about this. So uh, the next book, and I don't know, I haven't even started writing it yet, so uh, I don't know when it'll be available, but it's going to be called Jesus Unforsaken. And it will look at uh, all of those things about the cross and salvation and you know, how, how should we understand uh, the cross and salvation and sin and who we are and all of that. So yeah, I'm excited about that. Well, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us again Absolutely. for that book when it <laughs> releases. Uh, man, I really appreciate your time today. I want to encourage all of our friends listening today to order a copy of this incredible new book, Jesus Unexpected. It's available now. Go get a copy today before you forget. You're going to want to get this in your hands. You'll have all the scholarly research and also this beautiful vision of the church that Keith lays out in this book. I am so excited for you to get this in your hands, and I hope you'll do it right away. Keith, what's the best way for folks listening to today to engage with you and your work online? Yeah. So um, probably the three best ways would be um, my blog on Patheos, just keithjobs.com. I blog there regularly. You can um, you can subscribe to that, follow that, and get that in your in your email box, whatever. Uh, and or leave comments there. I respond. Um, also Facebook. I'm very active on Facebook. You can follow me there. I think I'm already at my friends limit, but you can follow me there on Facebook and on Twitter as well. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So, and I'd love to engage with, with people who have questions or who have read the book or anything like that. So yeah, those are the best places. We're going to link to Keith's Patheos column and also to all of his social media in the show notes as well. So you can find him easily and quickly. I'm also going to put a link there to his Patreon page, because when you find somebody who's willing to pour their lives out for the gospel, and for God's people, and for human beings created in the image of God. When you find somebody with integrity, when you find somebody who loves their wife and their boys the way Keith does, you want to invest in his work. And so I want to encourage everybody. We're not going to plug our Patreon. I'm sorry. Yeah, our Patreon this time. We're going to plug, plug Keith's. So we're going to put a link in the show notes for this episode to Keith's Patreon. And I want to encourage you to support him with whatever you can each month to help him continue to do the important work that 
that he does. I can't tell you how many people that I've spoken with who have benefited from Keith's ministry, and we need to keep Keith doing what he does. And obviously, he needs to provide for his family. So a great way for you to do that is through Patreon. You get incredible perks. I'm telling you, some of the video interviews that Keith's done that only go to his patrons on Patreon uh, are incredible. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Keith, I love you, brother. Thanks so much for your time today. Oh, Jason, love you too, man. Thank you for this amazing conversation. Thank you for what you're doing with the podcast. And uh, man, keep going. You're doing great. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.